A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from the worlds of literature, music, film and of course art and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With William Kentridge, the South African artist whose art began with drawing but has grown to encompass film and video installation, sculpture, tapestry, sound, performance and puppetry. He's also expanded into other art forms like opera and theatre. His work teems with imagery and ideas, reflecting on his autobiography, on the inequities of apartheid South Africa, but also on broader histories from colonialism to communism and much more. His vision is also consistently surprising, radical and unorthodox. William is a great absurdist, and the breadth of references from art, literature, film and music in his work is astonishing, making him an ideal a brush with guest. William was born in 1955 in Johannesburg in South Africa, where he continues to live and work. His family is much celebrated. His parents, Sidney and Felicia, were both lawyers and opponents of apartheid. Felicia co-founded the Legal Resources Centre, which attempted to provide judicial fairness for black South Africans, and Sidney defended Nelson Mandela in his 1956 treason trial, as well as Desmond Tutu and the family of Steve Biko, a victim of police brutality. And while William was a prominent student activist and originally studied political science and African studies as well as art, he ultimately decided to interrogate ideas not in the courtroom but in galleries and on the stage. In the early years he was involved in theatre and art but his breakthrough as an artist came in the 1980s with drawings that responded to conditions in South Africa at that time in expressionist charcoal and pastel. He gained more prominence internationally when he developed the drawings from single images into remarkable animated short films that he called drawings for projection. He's continued making these ever since. There are 11 films in the series made between 1989 and 2020. Based in Johannesburg and evoking South Africa's past and present, they have a loose overarching narrative relating to a property tycoon called Soho Eckstein, but they're full of autobiography and also feature a character called Felix Teitelbaum, who physically resembles William. He begins each film with a charcoal drawing and then painstakingly embellishes and erases it, capturing each moment on a frame of film. As a result, imagery forms, fades and then reappears in poetic, mesmerising sequences. Alongside the drawings for projection, Williams developed increasingly ambitious productions in multiple media alongside a wealth of collaborators from dancers to actors and composers. He's directed operas in cities across the world, often adapting them for museums and galleries in the form of multi-screen video projections. One example is his 2010 production of Dmitry Shostakovich's satirical opera The Nose from 1928 for the Metropolitan Opera in New York. William turned the preparatory work for the opera into an eight-screen video piece called I Am Not Me, The Horse Is Not Mine, now in the Tate collection. The scale of these productions is often overwhelming. It seems that no space is too daunting for him. In Triumphs and Laments in 2016, for instance, he made a 500-metre-long frieze of drawings directly on the walls alongside the River Tiber in Rome, themed on the history of the Eternal City, from the glory of St Peter's to the shame of the Jewish ghetto. On its unveiling, that frieze was accompanied by a live performance with a procession of performers and musicians casting giant shadows against the river walls. This combination of drawing, shadow and performance has prompted a series of extraordinary works, including More Sweetly Play the Dance from 2015, again based on a parade of figures and forms, to The Head and the Load, a remarkable absurdist retelling of the history of African soldiers in the First World War, made in 2018 for Tate Modern and the Park Avenue Armoury in New York. Recent multimedia works like 
Sybil, made to accompany a chamber opera William developed in Rome in 2019, and the new work Oh to Believe in Another World, a five-channel video projection made in response to Shostakovich's Symphony No. 10, continue this rich, immersive vein of William's practice. But he's always a maker as well as a producer, never losing the intimate process of drawing that remains at the heart of his practice and relentlessly emphasising the magical yet absurd experience of making art. His drawing lessons are short videos where William appears in often sardonic or comical dialogue with himself as he works and thinks, questioning what it is to be an artist and acknowledging the peculiar nature of creative acts. Series of vast works on paper depicting flowers and trees reflect on the ongoing vitality of drawing to him, the inexhaustible power of ink and charcoal. And it's this simple medium with which I began our conversation. William said that he likes sticks of charcoal because of the indeterminacy of the point. And I asked him, why is that such a productive basis for his work? If you work with a fountain pen or a ballpoint pen, you know exactly where the tip of the pen is and you do your writing knowing where that knowledge is. If you work with a thickish stick piece of charcoal, say the thickness of your thumb, you've got a fair idea where it will hit the paper and how the mark will work. But if you're working with a piece of charcoal, say the thickness of your wrist with a blunt edge, you can't actually see where it's going to hit the paper, so you have to rely on your arm and your shoulder and the charcoal having this conversation to find its own way on the sheet of paper. And very often marks that seem almost random as it hits the paper turn out to be very precisely there. This touch of a mark makes an eyebrow. This shadow, in fact, becomes the shadow of a cheek. That's really nice. And and of course, one of the things I'm conscious of, having been to art school, is this idea of fixing drawings. When one works with charcoal, there's a, there's a desperation almost to fix. And of course, you do the opposite. You unfix, you erase and revise. I do. I mean, the, the point about charcoal is that you can alter it as quickly as you think. If it's oil paint, you've got to scrape it down, let it dry, or I would always. It's a slow process, so it's thinking in slow motion. Whereas with a piece of charcoal, you can draw for an hour, but then with one wipe of a chamois leather, it disappears. You're just left with a grey smudge, lighter or darker grey smudge, which means you can destroy something very quickly, but it also means if there's a new impulse, a new shape, you want to change something, a horizon line, a, a word, you can do that in the way that you would when you're thinking, no, I meant this, no, not actually that, rather just this. So there is that flexibility which meets the process of animation halfway, a process of understanding the drawing as influx, of changing from one thing into another. And of course, a notion of flux is sort of inherent also in that other aesthetic, which is a dominating aesthetic of yours, which is collage, because that allows you that same flexibility, allows the work to remain fluid at all times, right? There are two things with collage. One is that one understands the world as fragmented, but one can either resist that or bemoan it, or one can kind of celebrate the possibility. So you have a ceramic jar and you drop that and it's shattered into a million pieces one understands from entropy it's never going to reform itself but from those fragments all sorts of other possibilities emerge so that's one element about collage the other more so about charcoal and the erasure of it than collage directly is understanding the world as process rather than fact so if you're drawing a table and that's the fact of a table but if you understand that your table can also have a prehistory of a plank and being a tree and a post-history of being the fire, the smoke and the ashes, then there's a sense that the drawing is a very limited representation of what is in front of you. And the animation is a way of making clear and palpable processes that we know but can't generally see. I'm really interested in the way that you use that to conjure images which may almost seem subliminal in the work. I was conscious of this when I was watching Tide Table. There's lots of images of cows in that, and then suddenly there's Rembrandt's ox right there in front of you, and it's there for a split second and it goes. It seems to me you use those little flashes of recognition really powerfully. I mean, I'm allowing images from the past when they're so saturated with all the images of what one sees. And if you're an artist, that's a lot of different images made by other artists over the centuries, which are part of what one's eye is. So in the film Tide Table, there's a section which is just made at the period of the AIDS pandemic in South Africa, around 2003, when many, many people were dying because there wasn't decent antiretroviral treatment. 
And in South Africa, it was known as the disease of slimming. People would get very thin before they died. And that put me in mind somehow of the thin cars and the thick cars of Pharaoh's dream that Joseph interprets. And so that became drawings of cars that expand and contract and sort of the image of Rembrandt of what the cow transforms into the side of beef became one of the images. So without thinking too much, what is the relationship of that meat, an animal turning into meat in terms of the whole film, it gets put there as a proposition. And then in terms of those sort of propositions, one of the ways that you introduce ideas and have consistently introduced them through your work is these glyphs. You see them as sculptures. There's some that are large here in in the Goodman Gallery near where we sit. And also in, in the Royal Academy show, they're very small. But these are images that recur. I'm interested in the to and fro of those repeated images. So the glyphs are a they're a bit, you know, not quite hieroglyphs, but they, they, they're not letters, but they're symbols that might be an ampersand or a coffee pot or a simplified drawing of a megaphone. It's about giving an image a weight. So when you do it as an ink drawing on paper, it has no weight. It's just it's in two dimensions. Or if you even tear it out of thin paper, the silhouette of it, it has no heft. But as soon as you start adding cardboard to it and wax and then make a cast of that, and cast that in bronze, you're suddenly given a weight to that very ephemeral either letter or word. So it's giving words a weight. And then they get rearranged on a shelf. They're the size of a paperweight. But there may be 40 of them, and they're put on shelves almost like the metal letters of a printing press, in which case you can rearrange them, not to make specific sentences, but to make something which might have a meaning, something that is at the edge of meaning, which you're invited to construct without expecting a coherent sentence to emerge. And that's interesting in the context of this idea that runs through your work again, which is this sort of sense of absurdity and the image which is there as a kind of exploding device, which somehow you think that the work is going in a certain direction and then it's a surprising element that will take you somewhere completely different. Sometimes one thinks that they might be a metaphor for something, but again, you disarm us by not allowing us to go coherently in one direction. Can you say something yeah. about that? I mean, I think it's about giving the image the benefit of the doubt. So starting with an impulse and seeing where that leads and what it might mean. It's about inviting the audience to be complicit in making meaning, to say, yes, I'm at the edges, the tip of my tongue. This, that reminds me of, it reminds me of. It's a bit like when you're hearing someone speak a language that you almost understand, but there's certain words that aren't there. You listen much more attentively and you're, part of the action of filling in, saying, well, he might have meant this, and this word I can't understand might be this word. And so there's a kind of a mistranslation, but it's both a productive mistranslation and it's full of agency of the mistranslator. And you mentioned about doubt there, and I think this seems to me to be a crucial element of the work. It's the doubt of the artist is expressed for a start, but also I suppose there's a doubt in any certainties that we might bring with us into the exhibition space to a degree. I think there's doubt in different forms. There's the natural doubt you have in the studio. Is this any good? Is the right? Is the shoulder in the right position? Must I redo it? How do I get this tone? Do I add uh, Naples yellow or yellow ochre? How, what, you know. But there's also doubt and uncertainty as an antidote to the violence inherent in certainty. As people are certain, you find them arguing the point, getting more and more strident, surer and surer. So to understand that every maintenance of certainty needs a kind of a man with a gun standing behind it. And that's been one of the histories of the disasters of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, the damage done by that certainty. Uh, Everybody is certain they're going to rescue the world, or every demagogue is certain he's going to rescue the world. And as we say in the film here, you know, we'll beat humanity into happiness with an iron fist. And so it's a, it's a kind of recognition of the dangers of certainty and the damage done by certainty. And of course, one of the ways that you do that is through language and the written word appearing in the work. And it seems to me that seems to be almost more prominent now than, than it ever has been. It is. It is. Uh, a lot of the work starts with me just either trawling through books and finding phrases or looking through old notebooks and going through different phrases by poets from many different sources, from novels, from things I've heard, Twana proverbs, African proverbs which give an indication of direction rather than a specific meaning. I mean, they're wonderful Swana proverbs like, you know, God's opinion is unknown. If the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor, which gave the title to the art center we have in Johannesburg, the center for the less good idea. 
Mm. So I'm interested in the way words and phrases can hover between being a graphic image and a specific meaning or something hovering at the edge of a meaning. Sometimes there isn't a specific meaning behind each phrase, a very detailed one, but it's like the second half of Cockney rhyming slang where you say apples and pears are stairs, but then you take away the rhyming part, so you talk about I'm going up the apples, and people have to know what the rhyming part to know what it is. So it becomes, in many cases, an unsolvable riddle that once had an answer. So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? When I was very young, my sister gave me, when she was older, she bought me a catalogue of a Hogarth exhibition that I think was here, was at the Royal Academy in the early 1970s. And that for me was a kind of revelation of the narrative, the satire, the engravings. But I grew up looking particularly at Miro and secondarily at Cezanne and Matisse. We had in the house... Cezanne, Matisse, Amiro, and uh, Modigliani. My parents were lawyers in Johannesburg, so it would have been inconceivable that these were real paintings. They were all prints. It was an era in which you would buy good quality reproductions at museums and frame them properly and have them on the walls of your house. So as a four-year-old, what's used to say what's a print and what's a real painting? And in my bedroom, from when I was zero, was a quite rough Miro painting on canvas. And it was intriguing because I thought, is that an eye? Is that a face? The same with the Cezanne. Is that a person standing at the edge of the road, or is that just a paint mark or a drain pipe? And the Matisse, why is that one leaf square and the other leaves leaf-shaped? And in retrospect, it was always the unsolved riddles in the painting that one would keep coming back to. Um, so I wouldn't say that these are the first artists I loved, but these are very central in a kind of visual life. That's interesting because always I wonder what you're going to say in this instance. And of course, if you were to say to me, okay, William Kentridge is going to talk about satire, I wouldn't necessarily have said Hogarth. But it's interesting because I always think of your work as being deeply informed by the Noah Sashlish character. It is. So that was slightly later. That was adolescent then. No, before Max Beckman, George Gross particularly came in and then the photo montages of John Hartfield. So yes, the Neue Sachlichkeit was very important when I was a... Uh, sort of an art student and an adolescent. And of course, when I was a student, there was a tug between American color field painting, which is what the art school is advocating, and a kind of figuration of um, Francis Bacon here in Britain, and then a link back to other forms of modernism that hadn't abandoned the figure. So some South African artists like Dumili Feni, but Max Beckman was very central. And of course, Goya going through them all. And Beckman makes an appearance in one of your flower He's paintings. there. It's like an homage. There's Manet is there. When one thinks of what is the range of the things that Manet was doing, he was doing paintings and fantastic in lithographs of historical events, the execution of Emperor Maximilian, the people on the barricades in Paris in the 1870s at the Commune, and also at the same time painting his little vases of flowers. Yeah. So it's about saying whether it's flowers or other things, there's a kind of a similarity of intent. And, of course, flower paintings in the exhibition at the Royal Academy also relate to the politics of flower paintings in China, which is a history maybe seven or 800 years old, where depending on how you painted your vegetables, you'd be making a subtle or less than subtle critique of the emperor. If you painted black petals instead of white petals on the cherry tree, you were saying there's something rotten in the state. If you painted your bok choy, a little bit too close together, you'd say the emperor is not looking after his empire, is allowing weeds to grow. So there's a kind of other histories as well as just the pleasure of transforming a petal into ink and paper. Is there a certain delight that you have in sort of imagining being in those roles to a certain degree? I hadn't thought of myself as being in those roles, but there's certainly the pleasure of saying, okay, if we have a very white sheet of paper, like this dictionary is printed on a very white India paper, it suggests a light-coloured flower, the lightness of a, of a petal of a of a light flower, and others are much more absorbent of ink. So it's, it's also about what the material suggests and how it meets the process of drawing halfway. And which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Recently, a lot of Manet, but also 
the Russian constructivists, because it sort of varies depending on the projects that I'm working. Just having finished a big project about Shostakovich and the kind of the relationship between artists and the state in the Soviet Union, then Tellingater, the great book designer and illustrator in the 1930s, the images as well as the words of Mayakovsky. So they've been very present in my head over the last years. And in that work, I've just seen the five-screen installation that's on at Goodman Gallery um, from 1st of October, that the presence of a photograph of Schwitters in the set seems to me it's to be... I don't know if is it's... It not Schwitters? I think it is Meyerholt, ah, okay. the theatre director. It could have been Schwitters, but in fact it was Meyerholt, and it's a photograph of him who is the great theatre director, and uh, but fell foul of Stalin, as did many artists. And in fact, the photograph that's incorporated into the set of the film is the police photograph of him, front and profile, just before he was executed. So it sort of sets the agenda. You see it at the beginning, but it's also the end point of the film. And abstraction seems to me, again, to be something that you've been preoccupied with, again, by the needs of certain projects and certain commissions. For instance, the Sybil project, which has got so many art historical references in it, relates to Calder. When one thinks of your aesthetic, Calder seems to be almost antithetical to it. I know. The thing about, one of the things about Calder is, of course, it's, it's kinetic. It's in movement. It's, about, it's not a fixed fact. It's not, I mean, there are stables, but essentially I was interested in the ones that... That move. That particular project came out because Calder had made a project with mobiles at Rome Opera, a short piece, and they said, could I do a piece in response to the Calder? And then, like rhyming slang, we did that, and then the Calder piece was taken away. We couldn't use it. <laughs> and so it had to find its own way. But there is a series of circles and movements of people that related. There's a kind of an innocence in the Calder movements, in those mobiles. They don't have to do anything more than delight through their movements. And we were somehow saying, if you had to put this movement to work, if you had to kind of find what is it that it can also be saying in the world. And so it's, you know, the innocence of the 1960s feels very, that was made in 68, very difficult to to be a part of now. So it changed from being called just the mobiles to questions about finding one's fate, escaping one's fate, questions of premature mortality, all the kind of things that have been with us, particularly in COVID, although the piece was made, the year before COVID. I wondered, looking at the Shostakovich-related film, I believe in another world, and also at the costumes for the Sybil project, were you looking at those great early 20th century theatre designs? We, and- we were looking at many different things, but yes, those great, they're, they're kind of a going back to basics. It's like people go back to listen to a piece of Bach and then go on the journey, and you can hear there's been Bach somewhere in the background. We go, it was, uh, so some of them are an homage to specific images, to a kind of Malevich costume design, but that get infected by local and other materials and ways of, of working. We discovered these flat cardboard cutouts as a way of making the characters and turning people half into puppets, half into performers. That, in a way, was the discovery of it. And the way of working with costumes made of paper as well as you know, many different materials is something that the costume designer Greta Gorius and I have been working on for a decade in different projects. I wanted to ask you about drawing from Michelangelo, yes. uh, those Sibyls in the yes, Sistine Chapel. They, they are, so the, the Sibyls, we know there are many different images of the Sibyls, but the one that are in my head are the ones from, I don't know if they're called the Spandrels or the Lunettes in the Sistine Chapel of four Sibyls. And so in the in the book, in which there are many, many hundreds of drawings that the Sybil has, there's kind of a memory of those other Michelangelo drawings and some drawings of the dancer who played the part of the Sybil on, on stage. And they were done to say, let's remember the Sybils and we'll see if they get into it or not. And they just got photographed in amongst the books, but they do stand out. as They do. The, but I wonder if you felt like you were engaging in this sort of, you know, centuries-old process that so many artists have drawn from those other, from studied other, from them, you know. Oh, no, it was very much a sense of, oh, my God, let's look at actually the, the drawing of it, which are, are kind of wonderful. I think, oh, is it, do you use the same model, just change the position of the head? Yeah, you can see things that he's looked at also, but there are, I mean, his drawings or his paintings are so masterful in their draftsmanship. It one will always learn from simply trying to copy them as best one can. Let's talk about contemporary art. Which contemporary artist do you most admire? Gosh, different works of different artists at different exhibitions mm. where I suddenly think, oh, that's... So the Kiefer exhibition that was at the Royal Academy, that second room, the huge room with those beautiful 
dark wooden things, the, the huge landscapes with the woodcut heads mm. on top, those for me were compl- and still are so powerful and so central to my way of uh, thinking. They often sit in the back of my head. The Cornelia Parker exhibition at Tate Britain, some of those, I think, ah, oh, damn, if only I'd thought of that, I would have done it, but I didn't. She thought of it, not me, the squashed brass band. I thought, what a great way of thinking about the brass band, the exploded view. Those sort of moments held. There's so many things uh, of recent things that sort of jumps out very strongly for me. When I think of you in a contemporary milieu, I very much think of you as your artistic peers being in other disciplines in some ways. And that's yeah. part of this extraordinary network of composers, dancers, choreographers, etc. that you yeah. have assembled around you or, or, or just met over yes. the course of making your work. By now, there's quite a considerable group of people who are not, you're not in a team, they're not employed. But they are called upon when different projects happen. Some of them come from people I've met at the Center for the Less Good Ideas, some I've worked with for many years. The designers I've worked with, set and costume, and the editors are sort of long-term. And composer working with Philip Miller has been going on for 20 years or so. So it's not that there are no other works, other people doing it. But there's an ease of communication, and there's a back reference. And more than that, there are very often projects take a couple of years. So maybe while we're doing an early rehearsal for one project, we're busy working and talking, say, let's take two days off and think about the next one that's coming towards us. So there's a slow gestation of of many people, which is vital. I need to work with people who are happy to also work with uncertainty, to allow something to to develop. But we say at the beginning, do we know what we're doing? No, but let's discover at the end what it was that we were doing. At this point, I normally ask people what they've got pinned to their studio wall, but unusually for you, I kind of know what you've got pinned to your studio wall. (laughs) Um, So tell us about the drawing lessons, I guess. I mean, to what extent is that a staged reflection of your studio or is it just the reality of life in the studio? So the drawing lessons are the series of conversations with myself. So I'm filled twice, one on each side of the table as we're sitting here, and then the video is spliced down the middle. So the task is to remember what I'd said five minutes before when filming myself A to reply to in B, and then a lot of fancy footwork by the editors to keep the conversation flowing. So I would have a sense, right, I'm going to work on one of these. And the process of setting up the table and the position of the chairs and what is seen in the background is usually the process of time of thinking, what the hell are we going to say? What the hell are we going to say? That takes longer, setting up the... So it is always material that is in the studio at the moment. But the series of them, I think there are now 20 different drawing lessons like that, are in also a way of a, a record of the studio of what's in the background of those lessons. Kind of diary in a way. Yes, an inaccurate diary, but it does show oh, that's that year I was doing these drawings, this year that project was on. So there's one where there's a big flower picture behind, and okay, that was the backdrop for my daughter's wedding, so I can date that exactly. And so there was the, I think it was a painting of a, of a fountain which was done just to put on the wedding invitation, so that can be dated precisely. And recently I've been working on a series of films about life, it was my lockdown project, a series of films about life in the studio, a nine episode series of films called at the moment self-portrait as a coffee pot and that was a chance to actually see what is in the studio to think of the studio as an enlarged head what are the thoughts that move across the walls of the studio and so for that for each episode there were new drawings being made but also new situation in the studio and is there anything that you would regard as a kind of fixture in the studio something you have to have there as a kind of reference point either made by you or made by someone else well, there's the old movie camera that I used to shoot on, a 35mm Aeroflex 2C, which I've stopped using for now for 10 years. It's been shot digitally. But it stays there as a kind of, like the Larrys, the household gods, the kind of Greek household gods. And there's also an old sousaphone stuck to a chair. And these kind of get shifted on their wheels to different corners of the studio, but they're very seldom put in the cupboard. So I don't think, well, they're not fixtures because they move, but they're permanently there. Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 100 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. 
If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can explore multiple institutions where William Kentridge has shown his work, from the Jewish Museum, MoMA PS1 and the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, to the Whitechapel Gallery and Tate in London. The digital guide to Tate contains a selection of video content. In the Artists Around the World section, you can see an interview with another South African artist, Billy Zangewa, a former guest on this podcast. And in the Painters category, you can watch films featuring artists as diverse as David Hockney and Lynette Yadon Boache. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? In London, we have a pied My wife and I have a pied which is in Great Russell Street. So it's right across the road from the British Museum. So that's, you know, more particularly before COVID. But that's a place to say we've got half an hour. Let's just go and look at one corner and one room or one object or take our grandson again to see the mummies of the cats. So in a way, that's, uh, that's the basic museum. In New York, it would be going to the Metropolitan Museum. You know, however many times you go, there are new things to see in those Manet paintings, in everything there. Yeah. So it varies. Sometimes months go past where I'm not really keen to go into a museum, and this summer I really go a lot to see what's on. In the film, which is called City Deep, yes. one of the drawings for projection, the set is the Johannesburg Art Gallery. I was interested seeing this film. It made me ponder what that space means to you. So the Johannesburg Art Gallery was the Ur Museum, the museum of my childhood. That's what I assumed all art museums were. The old parts are very beautiful design, Edwardian building design by Lutyens, the great colonial architecture of India, of many places, with quite grand rooms, a bit like some of the rooms at the Royal Academy on a much smaller scale, barrel vaulted ceilings. So that was my basic museum. But over the last 20 years, it's become more and more dilapidated. The roof keeps getting stolen for the copper that's in it. So it leaks and rooms are shut and parts of the collection are stolen and missing. So it it limps along, but it has a very dispirited atmosphere and a very dispirited curatorial team. And it's in a very rough part of town now. You know, there are many guidebooks that say, above all, don't go near the Johannesburg Art Gallery. And that makes it very hard to sustain. So that's the sadness. And in a way, this was the blowing up or the collapse of the art gallery in the film is a record of that. It's both literally kind of how the gallery feels at the moment, but it's about the passing of a kind of era, an acknowledgement of what is the cost of that gallery. To have any of these beautiful galleries, we know the cost of other people's labor that is there. And I'm sure that's a, a reckoning which we know museums are beginning to have, and the whole question of old wealth, the whole question of the wealth of the colonies is a question which very much comes onto the agenda very strongly quite soon. When you talked about the British Museum, I, I imagine, therefore, that's very present in your mind, even as you're experiencing its wonders, that there are... You know, it that, is. It's yeah. one of the things where, I mean, we have the of saying there is no good solution. There is no good solution. There's a, there was a moment in Paris where they had all their art from Africa. It used to be in the Musée de l'Homme. Now, at one stage, it was in the Louvre, in a tiny section of the Louvre. Then they built Cape Branly to try to say, no, we shouldn't see it as fine art. We should see it as something that has a particular cultural heritage. And you think, well, why shouldn't those sculptors be seen as within the tradition? And so they were sort of moved on fields by ambulance from one museum to the other, And I always felt it was in that journey, in the ambulance, where they were neither in one nor the other, where they were most themselves. So you could understand it in the same way when the problematic question, we understand it doesn't make sense to have a kind of identity fundamentalism, to say everything that's been made in Africa must live in Africa. Only eat sushi in Japan. Never drink Mexican beer if you're not in Mexico. Every Madonna should be back in Italy. One understands that becomes an absurdity. But it's also absurd to say, oh, well, all these works that have arrived in different museums, usually by you know, immoral means, why should they all stay there? So it doesn't work to say all 3,000 Benin bronzes are in Africa and you can only see them there. But it also isn't fine to say, oh, well, there are 3,000 of them sitting in storerooms in different European museums. So the, the imperfect solution, the less good idea, for me, is the way of thinking about them. Finding partial and changeable and uh, provisional solutions 
so that one keeps the question around it alive. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I saw a, a documentary, I think, about uh, Mikis Theodorakis when I was about 16, some small cinema in London. And that, for me, was one of the most energizing, extraordinary experiences, both the rousingness of the music. I was just at the right age for politics to come into my head in a, in a big way. So that kind of moment I can feel, it either confirms something about oneself or it opens up a new thought about uh, what it is. But then seeing Zigavetto's Man with a Movie Camera, that also said, oh, kind of filmmaking that's possible, that's not narrative in the conventional way, that can take all these different filmmaking and later on, some of the films of Méliès in a different way about saying, well, what can you do with a camera in the studio? How can you play with a camera in the studio? So to say, oh, these are other ways of thinking about animation of narrative than I'd seen before. That's wonderful. I also wanted to ask you about your trip to Paris when you were very young and this extraordinary fact that you made three drawings in the Louvre and two of them were of gibbons in ancient Egyptian art. Gosh, <laughs> that knows more. Than, that's a memory that you're right. And I'm trying to think, well, they were a hell of a lot easier to copy than any of the Renaissance paintings. <laughs> There's something quite schematic about Egyptian sculpture. So they were a good thing for a young person to to draw the shape was quite clear they're almost like a lesson in drawing but it was also it seems to me a, a really pointed combination of place yes. in the sense that here were egyptian sculptures of a an animal you knew from africa, africa from the zoo ever, yes. in paris i know so it was I th there must have been something saying okay what is it that draws one of all the million things that was the thing that i chose to draw extraordinary which writers or poets do you return to Mayakovsky, a lot. A lot for the energy that comes through and also the fact of taking on the whole city as his playground. And then later on, other writers from what was Eastern Europe, um, Wyslava Szymborska, all the Polish poets, some of the other, Marina Tsvetaeva, Svetlana Alekseevich of current recent writing, as well as the more great Central European writers like um, Kafka, of course. And Gogol, people for whom the absurd and the displaced logic was part of the ways of working. Your project, The Nose, is one of the most memorable pieces I can remember seeing. It, it was in the tanks at Tate Modern right. when I saw it. An extraordinary project. It seemed to me, on the one hand, again, like so much of what I see in your work, it seemed like a challenge to yourself to take on this extraordinary project, to take on something you, it's almost impossible to respond to in some ways. Well, it's a great opera, but it's mainly I'd come across the story first, and it's such a fantastic short story. I mean, Chekhov described Gogol's short story, The Nose, as the greatest short story ever written. And I can't think of a better one. Because um, it is both absurd and sad and poignant and revelatory about power, about hierarchies, about so many different subjects. And Shostakovich as a 22-year-old threw everything into it that he'd learnt or that he'd heard. I mean, it's a, a look for other stories of the absurd. There's a wonderful Cameroonian novel from 1950s called Houseboy, La Vie du Boy, which we've turned into a theatre project at the centre, which we perform in different places. It's not the same absurdity as The Nose, but it has the same lightness of touch that is both heartbreaking and completely revelatory of central processes of colonialism in action. I wanted to ask about this wonderful little piece in the Royal Academy exhibition, which is you pacing on the pages of a book. And the book that you chose was Machado de Assis, the Brazilian writer. Right. Why that book? Well, I think one of the books that was a revelation to me is a book which is La Memorias Postumas de Brascubas, or translated into English they call it, uh, Epitaph of a Small Winner, which I suppose it was a meta-novel, but it's the first time I've come across it as someone self-consciously writing about the process of writing. This is a dead person writing a novel. And the shifts and changes, and I looked for another Machado Dacis novel, which was for an exhibition in Brazil, hence a Brazilian writer. And this great novel, um, How I Did Not Become a Minister of State, that's what the title of the short film is. And also the epigram at the beginning of the exhibition, let the drama begin at the end, as he's writing about, why don't we tell stories, tragedies like uh, Othello, let's start at the end with the death, but let's end with this ravishing love between the two. If one could live, unwind one's life that way. And it's, it's about a prisoner stuck or about being stuck in one's head. And so it's a person who, whichever page you open, there he is. He walks upwards, backwards and forwards inside the book with these various thoughts coming through him.
One use of poetry in your work seems to me to speak to the way that we all of us internalise and think through poetry and remember snippets. And that's Shelley's Ozymandias, which is a poem I learnt at school. And I still have snippets of it, even even though I've probably not opened that poem to read. How far can you get? Well, (laughs) how far can you get? We can try it together. So I met a traveller from an antique land. Who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them half sunk the shattered visage lies whose frown and sneer of cold command show that the sculpture well those passions read that yet remain stamped on this lifeless thing. And then this miss parts are missing. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So I know that a bit because I did a film using different colours with different words. But I've missed the middle part. <laughs> but it's but interesting. Are, one sticks with tiny fragments. And some people have acres of poetry. Those who were educated before I was in the 40s and the 30s, where they had to do a lot of rote learning, are blessed with these, or cursed with these reams of poetry that, that go through their head. Let's talk about music. Yeah. We're surrounded by Shostakovich. Was that piece inspired purely by a commission? You'd obviously made work based on Shostakovich. Shostakovich. Was Shostakovich something that you were enthused about or interested in as a cultural I, phenomenon? I mean, the first film I made, which we put sound to, which was before the Soho Eckstein films, um, a short film called Exhibition, which was the first time I'd put sound. And in that, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to use the last movement of a Shostakovich piano concerto, which is so rousing and busy, piano and trumpet. And that was just a piece of music I'd love to play it again and again on the gramophone, really just that movement. So I think back, it's kind of the first film music I'd used. And then obviously there was the nose, and then there were other fragments. There's something with the relationship between a kind of music and animation that's important. You have it in the Schubert, the Winterreiser, which is a kind of a rolling wheel, I always describe it to Philip Miller, the, the composer, that pushes the animation along, that helps the actual flickering of the frames make sense as you're looking. And all the pieces of the Shostakovich that I've used, or most of them, have something of that behind them. I mean, he was a pianist for silent films. He kind of understood the energy needed for films to work. And he wrote many pieces of film, of film music also. So even the symphony is not made for a film, although he used to say he'd love to see images with his symphonies. You know it's likely to work when you kind of almost at random put a piece of the symphony with the images that you're working rather than trying to force them into a relationship. And then you've, obviously there's a lot of learning the grammar of the music and of the images and how they fit together. And in this version of um, Oh to Believe in Another World, which came out of the film for Shostakovich's 10th Symphony, there are lots of different pieces of Shostakovich. A percussion interlude from the nose, uh, Shostakovich piano music, some fragments from a ballet suite, as well as the Tenth Symphony. Your relationship with Philip Miller now has lasted a couple of decades. Yes. It seems to me, and I've read texts that he's written about the work, and, and it seems to me that he's as dexterous and, and as, as referential and as kind of open to influence as, yeah. as you are in terms yes. of like reference so points. I did one opera with a composer, and he was a very well-respected composer, and he'd written beautiful music. But his way of saying, all right, you do the writing, I'll send you the music, and that's it. And it was a kind of a, it was not a happy experience, and I, don't, and I think that showed in the final work also. And I thought, okay, Philip at that stage didn't have the same name, he didn't have the same, but I would have been so much better served by working with, with Philip, who has an openness to the performance he's working with, say, let's see what they bring to it, to saying, let's start with this fragment of Schubert and it will become something completely different, but we'll have that. In the piece Black Box, which is a mechanical theatre in the exhibition at the Royal Academy, a little automatons moving, ostensibly the story is about the genocide in Namibia in 1903. That's the basis of it. But it's also a look at the political underbelly of the European Enlightenment and that of Mozart's magic flute. So everything in that is a reworking of something of the magic flute, of Mozart's songs from the magic flute. And to have someone who's flexible who said, yes, this will be a pleasure, or to say, 
let's work with a very different combination of instruments that one wouldn't uh, expect or say, here are three singers, let's see what we can do with these three particular singers. It's a very sympathetic way for me to work with a composer. And he's been working recently with Tutuka Sibisi. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's a really productive It is, and he's working. I mean, it was a fantastic, and it has been, and we, he's working also with other, Tsego Fatso, who is a fantastic other musician, singer, but doing things together. But with Tutuka, he made the most moving version of God Save the King that I've ever heard, which is takes it apart. And at a certain point, it gets questioned, who is the king? How did he become king? This is a sort of an African colonial response to it, but it is so beautifully sung and it catches you completely. You know, people who say, Oh my God, I'd never ever want to hear that song, suddenly being caught by the particular. That was in the head and the load, which we did here at the Tate mm. uh, just before COVID. And one of the things about that work and also the work called Triumphs and Laments, yes. which was on this extraordinary piece on, on the, the Tiber, Tiber, on the walls by the Tiber. Obviously, they were processional works. They were theatrical, operatic, etc. But it seems to me that the music internalised that structure so completely. It, it did, because this is a, a piece that was across 500 yards of the Tiber. And for the opening, we had a performance of two bands, a band of Triumphs, a band of Laments, approaching each other from this 500 meters apart and crossing through each other. And we watched it from 100 meters away on the other side of the river. So he had brass bands, but he also brought some singers from South Africa that he works with a lot. But he also, in Rome, found some street musicians that you know, no one knew they went. And he invited them to be part of it, and they were very central to the kind of sound. So it was Africa singing back to Europe, and some of the street musicians in Rome, in fact, had come from other parts of the world as well. It was over many workshops. It wasn't just thrown together in the evening, but it was absolutely shaped by these different... Uh, Tarantella singer from, uh, from Naples that was there, an operatic singer. And all these different things were allowed to come together. So it was also about a kind of bastardy, saying our hope is to work across different traditions, not to try to find an authentic tradition, to understand there are no authentic traditions. Any claim to... And authenticity is a false claim because everything is so infected and inflected by all around it. Let's talk about other media. Film, obviously, is hugely important. Yeah. Um, are there any sort of consistent reference points? It seems to me early film, especially. Early, is film, early film is the films of Melias of himself in the story of Bruce Nauman and himself in the studio. So there are definitely those as... I reference different moments of animation, mainly from Eastern Europe, uh, the great Canadian animator, McLaren. So there are things like that that are deeply in my sort of filmmaking psyche, which come out at different times. And was the presence of Pasolini and scenes from Fellini in the Triumphs and Laments, were they sort of minor homage? Or no, was it minor homages. I mean, they, Fellini is, I love those Fellini films. So the image of Anita Eckbird and Marcello Mastroianni in the Trevi Fountain from La Dolce Vita is there as an image, and that image stands in for the whole fantastic energy and openness of filmmaking that Fellini had. It looks as if it was a film that had no script. I'm so bad as a writer of narrative that none of my films have a script or a, even a storyboard. Even this TV series of films, each episode develops as it goes rather than starting with a shooting script or a written script for either. You know, they have a script at the end, but it's something that develops in the days and weeks of shooting. And of course, the Dolce Vita scene was transferred to a bath. So in a way, it's like, is it about the impossibility of an homage? It's sort, of the, it's sort of about the impossibility. But in Rome, one of the fountains outside the Palazzo Farnese are the huge granite bath. Because that you could feel could be pulled along in a procession. You can't pull the Trevi fountain <laughs> in a procession, but the bath. So they got shifted into. And if you're in a bath, you need a shower. So they had a shower <laughs> over them as well. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? In the studio every day in Johannesburg, and there are two studios. There's one in the garden where most of my drawing or work happens, and there's a larger one in downtown where rehearsals and some larger-scale filmmaking or sculpture happens. But in the studio in Johannesburg, every day we have a studio lunch, lunch for whoever is working in the studio. So it varies between 8 and 18 people who meet for lunch, and that we all sit down together and sometimes the work is discussed, but usually not. But that, for me, is kind of an essential part of, of the studio, 
operates. People drift in, some come later, some come earlier, some stay later, but whoever's in the studio, and it's usually outside in the garden. I wondered about walking around the studio as well. Walking around the studio, that's true, is inevitable. And it's, it's like the preamble to starting the work, gearing up, gathering the energy. It's not so much coherent thinking, I must do A, B, C, and D, but it's almost when you've done, this is the list of things I have to do, but before you quite get down to the first mark. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? It would be a lithograph by Manet of the execution of Emperor Maximilian which is one of the great, great lithographs ever made. And obviously, I'd love to have a Manet painting, but that's not going to happen in my, in my lifetime. If I could have one of his little flower paintings, but the lithograph of the execution of Emperor Maximilian will stand in for all the, all the ones that I couldn't get. We've actually got some lithographs by you near us here. Lithography is such a wonderful technique, and it's relatively little understood beyond artists themselves. Yes. I mean, there's a pleasure of drawing on this piece of limestone with a greasy crayon that is very different to any texture of drawing on paper. It's quite a resistant medium, for me particularly, because it's not a medium you can adjust and change very easily. You have to reprocess the stone, you have to scrape it away. So a drawing, so that kind of amazes me, for example, with the Manet lithograph. And lastly, what's art for? What is art for? Hmm. To ease the passing of the time, of the hours, as Borges wrote. He said, why do you write? I do it to ease the passing of the hours. I think for me it's about to give a sense of agency in the world, both to the person making it, but through looking at it also to viewers. William, thank you very much. Thank you. That was great. William Kentridge is at the Royal Academy in London until the 11th of December. Oh, to Believe in Another World is at Goodman Gallery in London until the 12th of November. William Kentridge in Praise of Shadows is at the Broad in Los Angeles from the 12th of November until the 9th of April 2023. The exhibition That Which We Do Not Remember is at the M.K. Curlionis National Museum of Art in Kaunas, Lithuania until the 30th of November. And William's series of short films, Self-Portrait as a Coffee Pot is shown at the BFI London Film Festival on the 7th of October. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to William Kentridge. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.